We're looking at John chapter 13 and verses 1 to 20. It's on page 900 in the church Bibles. And uh, I'm going to read it for us and then we're going to talk about it together. But just to give you a sense of the background, this is coming in the second half. So John's gospel is written in two halves, the book of signs and the book of glory. This is the second half. And you can see the trigger of that in the way John writes when he says, um, now the hour had come. So this is the big moment, the big shift towards the focus on the cross. Jesus has been teaching. He's been offering them signs. He's been teaching. He's been saying, believe in me. And now he's given his last public sermon, a great drama. It's only the last time they're going to hear him preach publicly, the Jerusalem people. And now he's sending his face towards the cross. The hour has come. And so we pick up the story, um, John chapter 13. Let's hear God's word. I'm going to read from verses 1 through to 20. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God, was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, "'Lord, do you wash my feet?' Jesus answered him, what I'm, going to, what I'm doing you do not understand now, but afterward you understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I've chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. This is God's word. Amen. Do please sit down. So this morning, uh, the sermon is going to be structured like this. Remarkable story that shows us how to live a remarkable life, remarkable story, remarkable life in four ways. So we have a remarkable story that shows us how to live a remarkable life in four ways. First then, the story, verses 1 to 11. John begins in verse 1 by saying the context of the story. It takes place during Passover, probably during the Last Supper. And Jesus, as we said, knew that his hour, that is the time for when he was going to die on the cross, was coming. And so what Jesus is about to do, this remarkable story, John says, uh, he, he puts the context like this. Having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end. Now that phrase, to the end, is an expressing a Greek word, telos. And the Greek word telos, we don't really have an English equivalent precisely for it. So it's always hard for translators to know which word to choose. It means 
completion as well as end, consummation, um, the finality, the fulfillment. And so, in other words, what's about to take place, John is saying, is intended to show what I call the full extent of Jesus' love. Okay, we find it hard to understand the cross. This is intended to show us the full extent of Jesus' love. It's an illustration of Jesus' love shown ultimately the cross. So there's drama to it. And the drama in the story is heightened by, verse 2, the immediate presence of Judas, and of course the devil who prompted Judas to betray Jesus. We'll, we'll talk more about Judas next week. Next week there's a, a whole sort of little pericope uh, part of the story about Judas specifically. And uh, if you have questions about Judas, come back next week. I'll talk more about that then. Then verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he came from God and that he was going back to God. So what, what, does, what does John mean by that phrase there? Why does he say that phrase? I think John means something like this. Knowing that God is sovereign and has a sovereign plan to use even the betrayal of him, or betrayal of Jesus, Therefore, Jesus continues with his mission, despite the fact Judas is betraying him. It's all part of God's plan, and therefore, Jesus continues. Now, we need to stop and think about that for a moment, because it's quite remarkable, and if you, if you understand it, it will change how you live your life. Even the devil's work, even Judas's betrayal, somehow part of God's sovereign plan. John doesn't explain how here. That's another whole sermon or set of sermons. But he does say it's true. And therefore, of course, we should do the same as Jesus did. Knowing that God is sovereign, even when there are evil things going on, we stick to what God has called us to do. Christian, therefore, take courage. Take courage when in your life there are things that perhaps you feel are evil or difficult or hard or harsh don't immediately stop doing what God's called you to do. So many times people are given a task by God and they face opposition and they give up. It's not how the Apostle Paul lived his life. In fact, in Ephesus where he was there, we're told that he knew that a, a great door had opened for him partly because there are many who opposed him. That's how the Apostle Paul thought. That's how Jesus thought. This is all part of God's plan. Opportunity, spiritual opportunity, is often, often connected with opposition. It's a spiritual battle, of course. And so, we come now to the remarkable story of foot washing that Jesus continued with, verses 4 and 5. Now, we've got to set the context here to understand it. Washing someone else's feet, I suppose, is not a particularly pleasant experience ever, right? I mean, I suppose lovers might wash each other's feet, but, you know, you probably don't want to go up to some random person and say, hey, you know, I wash your feet, is that okay? Probably not, you know, the nicest thing you could possibly do. It probably smells a bit, right? But in those days... It's a whole, it's far, it's a whole different thing. Uh, so, 
So imagine, streets outside. Well, obviously, they, were, you know, they didn't have people going around at midnight cleaning the streets once a week or every night. You know, it didn't happen like that. They were dusty. They were dirty. But also, they didn't obviously drive in cars. There are animals, horses, donkeys, goats, wandering up and down Main Street in Wheaton, as it were. Not paved. No one picking up the stuff after the donkey. Leaving behind animal feces for human sandaled feet. They weren't wearing boots and shoes. They were wearing sandals. So those toes would have picked up manure. And so, before a meal, it was customary, therefore, to wash your feet. Now, those disciples would not have been sitting at the table. They'd have been lying down, head on, on, on their hand, lying down, use the other hand to eat with, feet spreading out, lying on a low couch or a mat, table in the middle. And normally, a servant would come and wash your feet. But in fact, washing feet was viewed as such a menial task that it's only performed by non-Jewish servants. One rabbi put it like this, all tasks that a Canaanite, that is non-Jewish servant, performs for his master, a student should perform for his teacher, except for untying his shoe, a demeaning act typically performed by servants and not appropriate for a student to do. So for Jesus to pick up the basin in the towel and wash his disciples' feet is to subvert all the normally accepted ways of operating, all the normally accepted hierarchy. It's not just that Jesus decided to do the dishes after the meal. It's like he picked up the toilet brush to clean out the restrooms in the hotel where the disciples were staying. This is work for the staff. And if anyone was to do it, then it should be the, being the disciples, not the teacher. It was servants' work, slaves' work, non-Jewish slaves' work. Peter then understandably objects. He's horrified, verse 6, and Jesus replies, verse 7, he doesn't understand now, but he will understand afterwards. That is, this action is meant to show the full extent of Jesus' love that will be afterward consummated at his crucifixion. When Peter objects still further, verse 8, Jesus says, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Jesus means that being his disciple requires spiritual washing, forgiveness of sins, the gift of his spirit that comes through faith in him. Salvation requires God's cleansing grace, admitting we cannot save ourselves, letting him wash us. And grasping Jesus' point, verse 9, Peter then says that Jesus should then wash all of him, not just his feet, to which Jesus replies, verse 10, that they don't need that complete washing because they already are clean, that is, his disciples already have been forgiven and washed clean of their sins except for Judas, verse 11, who is to betray him. And again, we'll think more about Judas next week. Now, this is a remarkable story, but we are so familiar with it. There are posters and 
memes online and there are slogans about picking up the basin in the town. There's songs about it. We're so familiar with it that it's hard for us to grasp its true radical nature, just how remarkable it is. One of my heroes as a Christian leader was a man called John Stott. He was on the advisory board of a Christian organization that I ran as a college student. And so I met him a few times personally, heard him preach on a number of different occasions. Now, like all human leaders, Stott was not by any means perfect, but by my observation, at least, he did grasp something of the essence of what Jesus is teaching here. There are several stories of John Stott that illustrate this. One comes from a meeting of African bishops in London. They're gathered to take counsel with the great John Stott. There were different things they were concerned about that were troubling the conscience of Anglican evangelical leaders globally. They come to hear what Stott said. And after he preached and given his counsel, there was an opportunity for them to converse together and talk. And then to the great and lasting surprise of these African bishops, they noticed that John Stott had picked up a broom and was carefully and unpretentiously sweeping the room clean to get it ready for the next people who were coming to use the room after the bishops had left. Jesus is so different from any other religious leader in this regard. He came to serve I mean, can you imagine any other religious figure behaving in this kind of way? Can you imagine Muhammad behaving this way? Buddha? Can you see those disciples' feet, goats' feces stuck between the toes, calluses and warts and all? It's a remarkable story, for it reveals the full extent of Jesus' love fulfilled at the cross. And this remarkable, or let us say radical story, is intended to show us how to live a remarkable or radical Christian life, verses 12 to 20. So here, verse 12, after Jesus had finished washing their feet, he started to teach them by asking them whether they understood what he had done. Then, verse 13, he begins to explain, you call me teacher and Lord and you're right for so I am. In other words, by taking the activities of a servant, Jesus is not thereby laying down his authority. Yes, you're right to call me teacher and Lord, so I am. But he's a teacher and Lord like you've never met before. He's a servant king. What then is the lesson we're meant to learn from this example? Verse 14, if I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. In other words, we have an obligation. We ought to wash one another's feet. For verse 15, he has given us an example to follow. And we are to follow example because, verse 16, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. We serve a servant king. And therefore, as his servants, as his messengers, we are to emulate his example of service. Because, verse 17, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. In other words, if you understand this, And know it, you will experience blessing if you put it into practice. Blessed are you if you do them. Happiness, joy, life to the full that Jesus promises, being blessed, 
comes through following Jesus' example of service. Stop, will you, to consider just how different this is from everything we've ever been told. Joy, success, blessing comes from, we are told, self-assertion, accumulation of financial assets, educational accomplishments, going to the right school, getting the right grade, um, getting the right kind of job, living in the right sort of house. That's how you receive joy and blessing. Jesus says, no, blessing comes from following his example of service. And then in verses 18 to 20, Jesus clarifies he's not talking about Judas who will betray him. Verse 18, Judas was not chosen by Jesus for the scripture will be fulfilled. Jesus quoting from a psalm where David describes one of his friends betraying him. Judas made his own personal choice to betray Jesus and yet Judas also was part of God's sovereign plan for Jesus to be crucified. And Jesus tells the disciples this, verse 19, so that when Jesus is betrayed, they won't think that Jesus was not in control but we'll have more reason to believe that Jesus is the one that he said he is. He is really the great I am. He is the Lord and God. And then with Judas still around the table, there's a last gospel appeal. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Which last appeal? Judas as we will see next week, rejects. Now, it's a remarkable story that shows us how to live a remarkable or radical life in four ways. Here are the four ways then. First, allow Jesus to wash your feet. Allow Jesus to wash your feet. I was first taught this spiritual practice by a Danish Christian friend. We were on the same team together in the Republic of Georgia, and he was the team leader. And when we talked together about various things, we would say something like, we need to serve God with all our lives. We were missionaries, of course. We were committed to doing God's work. And we were saying to one another, we need to really be committed to serve God. Of course, that is true. But my Danish Christian friend would keep on coming back with some comment like this. We need to let Jesus serve us. Frankly, I didn't accept that at the time. I thought he was wrong. What does he mean, let Jesus serve us? It's our job to serve him. Seems so counterintuitive. Here we were, giving our lives to God on the front line, sacrificially serving, and our team leader was telling us to let Jesus serve us? Surely he was wrong, I thought. Not until many years later did I realize he was right. To allow Jesus to wash our feet. Not to reject and refuse like Peter. You, Jesus, wash my feet? No. And yet he does. Allow Jesus to wash your feet. It is possible, you see, for us to become so devoted to doing the right thing that we become merely dutiful Christians, not joyful Christians, with God's grace poured into our lives all the time as he serves us. You say, what does that mean in practice? It can mean many different things. 
Sometimes it means asking God to give you what you really think you need or you really want or even you like. Now, it may be that he won't give you what you ask. It may be that what you're asking for is not good for you. But maybe it is good for you. And maybe you have not because you ask not. I remember one year when I'd been working particularly hard that Christmas. And I was flat out exhausted. And I remember saying to God something like this, Lord, I know this is a strange request, but this Christmas, I'd really like a pair of cowboy boots. Well, under the tree, there were no cowboy boots. Oh, well. And then a week or so later, I think it might have been around January the 7th, maybe he keeps the Orthodox Christmas, I don't know. (laughs) A friend of a friend had been given a pair of cowboy boots that for various complicated reasons he did not want and wanted to know whether I wanted them. They were from Texas, nonetheless. (laughs) The real thing. I've been asked if I'll wear them when I'm preaching. I think it would be too distracting. But if you come to the office sometime, I will wear them for you. <laughs> Seemed a small thing, but it wasn't really. It was a sign that God listened. He cared, that he, he knew the, the tiny things of my life. It means asking him to remove that sin from your life. It means asking him to give confidence in that area of your life. It give you the spiritual gift that you feel you need to do what you have been called to do. It means asking him to come and cleanse you from that sense of guilt that yet you still have burdening you. To, to come wash your feet. There's so much dirt on the streets of our life. We need Jesus to wash us clean. So will you ask Jesus to come and wash your feet first? Second, will you ask Jesus to wash you altogether clean? You see, the disciples, apart from Judas, had already had a bath, as it were. They'd been forgiven. They were the real disciples of Jesus. They'd been born again. They had his spirit. But perhaps you have not yet. Would you ask Jesus to serve you by cleansing you from your sins, wash away the guilty stains and start a new life with God or start that life again with God, clean and pure? You know, sometimes people don't commit to Christ and they don't come to church because they have to be a certain kind of person before they're walking through those doors. They feel like they're not good enough, they're they're not clever enough. Oh, to go to college church, you've got to have a college degree, of course. Nonsense. Oh, to go to college church, you've got to be rich, of course. Nonsense. Oh, to college church, you've got to be connected. You must have gone to Wheaton College. Nonsense. It's such an inversion of our religious norms. We think we've got to be clever enough, rich enough, holy enough. None of that is necessary. None. Not a little bit. None. You think, oh, I'm making it up. Oh, there's Josh Moody again. He's got off on a grace rant again. And he's just being all loose and unbiblical. Let me quote to you a Puritan. You think they were into being pure and holy? They were called Puritans, you know. 
One of the greatest and heaviest Puritan writers that ever existed was a man called John Owen. He, John Owen, said this. You ready? Jesus does not unite us to himself because we are perfect. He does not. Jesus does not unite us to himself because we are perfect, but that in his own way he makes us so. Not because we are clean, but that he might cleanse us. See, this is a complete reversal of every religious assumption we have in our minds. Religion says, be clean and God will accept you, maybe, if you're good enough. Jesus says, no, come as you are, dirty feet and all, unwashed, I'll clean you up. He takes on the role of a non-Jewish slave. And washes you clean. Will you have him? Will you ask him to wash you clean? That's all you need to do. And so third, washed by Jesus, feet and whole body as an expression of his love for you shown at the cross. Would you then wash others' feet? Of course, this is what it means to be in the community of the church. To be a place where we look after each other, where we wash each other's feet, where we care for each other, where we serve each other. Doesn't mean you literally have to physically wash other people's feet, though there's nothing objectionable to, be do- to doing so. I went to one church once that practiced this and had one wonderful deacon who washed my feet. Mercifully, he did not ask me to wash his feet. They looked rather strange. But you can do that if you want. There's nothing wrong with doing that. But Jesus is after something bigger and deeper. It means that you take up the attitude and the action of a servant, which, oh, that could lead to real greatness. So Jesus said, the greatest among you will be servant of all. But, but even if you're unrecognized, still being a servant. You know how you know whether you are a servant or not? One way to know whether you're a servant is how you respond when someone treats you like one. I've been taken for granted again. No one noticed what I did. No one cares. I've worked so hard. How do we get out of that attitude? We get out of that attitude by realizing that Christ, through his body, the church, serves us that we might serve each other. Let me give you an illustration of that. When, when I was uh, 21... I was appointed to run a large Christian organization. It was really beyond my abilities. And uh, they picked me to do it, and I said yes. But suddenly I had no time for my studies, none whatsoever. And what was I going to do? Well, another student offered to do something remarkable, astonishing for me. Every Monday, before our executive committee meeting, he would do all my grocery shopping for the week, so I didn't have to do any of that, and cook me a personal meal. I resisted. You? Do that for me? No, you can't do that. In fact, I think I turned him down once or twice. And then I mentioned it to a friend of mine, an older friend, and uh, he quite rightly told me pretty much what Jesus said to Peter, which is, you need to accept the goodness of Jesus in your life. Would you accept that? You know, sometimes someone will come up to you and say, look, I'd really like to help, and we'll say, no, I'm fine, I don't need that help. But inside you're thinking, you know, I do. 
Uh, can I cook you a meal? No, don't worry, I'll, I'll figure it out. Accept it. Embrace being served that you might serve other people. See, this isn't a burden of sort of thankless effort. You're being served by Jesus through his church that you might serve the church yourself. It's the joy of serving. It's the blessing. Jesus calls it a blessing. It's a blessing. Get up from supper and serve like Jesus, for Jesus is serving you. Perhaps you're facing retirement. You know, it's not really retirement, it's reassignment. You've got a whole new task. What are you going to do? What experiences that you've picked up in your life could you use? Make a list of them. I could, I could use that in the church. I could use this in the church. Maybe you're starting out on your career. You finish college and you're figuring out what you're going to do with your life. You know, it's not really a career. It's a calling. How can you use your accountancy for God, your banking for God, your professorship for God, your music for God, your being a mom and dad for God. You know, dads, when you come home from work, don't immediately, you know, pick up your phone and sort of hide on the couch away from everyone. Get down on the floor and play with the kids. You know, mums, don't, don't, don't live your life trying to get your children to do what it is that you want them to do so that they will make you look good. Do what it is that they were made to do so that you are serving them rather than building them up to serve you. Serve others. Fourth, having washed my Jesus' feet and whole body as an expression of the full extent of his love and so washing other people's feet, would you also therefore seek to bring other people to be washed altogether clean by Jesus? In other words, witness evangelism. Uh, it's sometimes said that evangelism is just one beggar showing another beggar where to find bread. But here we have a different analogy with the same idea. Evangelism is just showing someone where to get a bath. When I was uh, young, I used to go to a very popular festival with my uh, friends in England. It's one of those outdoor festivals in a huge farm, and we all camped under canvas and uh, listened to the music. One year we went, the festival occurred at the same time as a massive hurricane. I don't think we went back next year. You can imagine it, can't you? None of the showers worked. None of the toilets worked either. That was another whole deal. And then we were finally picked up by some other friends or our parents or whoever it was and taken home. You know the first thing we did when we got home? We had a shower. We washed up. We cleaned up. You know, there's no way of getting around it. The streets are dirty.
Some of it is our fault. We've done something we should not have done. We've lived our life in a way we should not have lived. We've lived, we've made choices that have damaged other people and damaged ourselves. We've, we've, if we're honest, we know we've messed up. Some of it is not our fault. Someone did something to us. Something happened to us. Maybe you lost a loved one this Christmas. We have a grief share program for you. Maybe you're struggling with feelings of sadness or anxiety. We have a mental health support group. Maybe you need help in an emergency. We have a care and share ministry. Maybe you, like me, have picked up enough dirt through the streets of this life that you really need a shower, a shower of God's grace and mercy. And it's here for you in Jesus. Would you receive him? Would you trust him? Would you ask him? And then would you invite others to come and be made clean too? We have that big event coming up soon, the Explore God event starting January the 27th. Who could you invite be made clean. A remarkable story, a servant story that shows us how to live a remarkable life, a servant life in four ways. Allow Jesus to wash your feet, ask Jesus to wash you altogether clean, wash other people's feet, bring others to be washed clean by Jesus too. We're going to stand to sing our last hymn. It's called Be Thou My Vision. And in a sense, that's what we're saying. Our life together is one that is following the example of Jesus because he came and cleaned us. We therefore wash other people's feet. Let's pray together as we stand. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, we do ask that indeed you would be our vision and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.